Hello, everyone, and welcome today to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we are still somehow inside of uh, 4.3, and we will someday emerge out the other side. Uh, we have uh, spent the last week mostly talking about uh, Charlie Chaplin, the, the sort of imminent nature of how his, his filmmaking worked, uh, the machinic nature of it, how it tossed into a whole bunch of fun stuff. And then now we're about to move uh, in its destructive task of schizoanalysis. Uh, any comments before we dive in that anyone wanted to leave behind? Any, any notes, any things at all? All right. Well, with that, then I will go ahead and jump in and start reading. In its destructive task, schizoanalysis must proceed as quickly as possible, but it can also proceed only with a great patience, great care, by successively undoing the representative territorialities and re-territorializations through which a subject passes in his individual history. For there are several layers, several planes of resistance that come from within or are imposed from without. Schizophrenia as a process, deterritorialization as a process, is inseparable from the stases that interrupt it or aggravate it, or make it turn in circles and re-territorialize it into neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. <clears throat> to a point where the process cannot extricate itself, continue on and reach fulfillment, except insofar as it is capable of creating... What exactly? A new land. In each case, we must go back by way of old lands, study their nature, their density. We must seek to discover how the machinic indices are grouped on each of these lands that permit going beyond them. How can we reconquer the process each time, constantly resuming the journey on these lands? Oedipal familial lands of neurosis, artificial lands of perversion, clinical lands of psychosis. In search of lost time, as a great enterprise of schizoanalysis, all the planes are traversed until their molecular line of escape is reached, their schizophrenic breakthrough. Thus, in the kiss where Albertine's face jumps from one plane of consistency to another in order to finally come undone in a nebula of molecules. The reader always risks stopping at any given plane and saying, yes, that is where Proust is explaining himself. But the narrative spider never ceases undoing webs and planes, resuming the journey, watching for the signs or the indices that operate like machines and that will cause him to go on further. This very moment is humor, black humor. Oh, the narrator does not homestead in the familial and neurotic lands of Oedipus, there where the global and personal connections are established. He does not remain there. He crosses these lands. He desecrates them. He penetrates them. He liquidates even his grandmother with a machine for tying shoes. The perverse lands of homosexuality, where the exclusive disjunctions of women with women and men with men are established, likewise break apart in terms of the machinic indices that undermine them. The psychotic earths, with their conjunctions in place, Charlouse is therefore surely mad, and Albertine too, perhaps, are traversed in their turn to a point where the problem is no longer posed, no longer posed in this way. The narrator continues his own affair until he reaches the unknown country, his own, the unknown land, which alone 
is created by his own work in progress. The search of lost time in progress, functioning as a desiring machine capable of collecting and dealing with all the indices. He goes towards these new regions where the connections are always partial and non-personal. The conjunctions nomadic and polyvocal, the disjunctions included where homosexuality and heterosexuality cannot be distinguished any longer. The world of transverse communications, where the finally conquered non-human sex mingles with the new flowers, a new earth where desire functions according to its molecular elements and flows. Such a voyage does not necessarily imply great movements in extension. It becomes immobile in a room and on a body without organs, an intensive voyage that undoes all the lands for the benefit of the one it is creating. This is like the king of paragraphs. It's incredibly dense. Um, oh, where do we even want to start? Where do we even want to start? It's a great question. Um, first, let me just mention a couple things about In Search of Lost Time. Um, it is 100% worth reading, and I do suggest, I do suggest it. Um, it is not a short read. It is a expect to start it and not read any other fiction for a while. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Um, it is a dense, complex narrative that weaves over itself and then loses itself and weaves again. Um, it is all, it is a thousand plus pages, like, and it's and it's significant. Um, now, now within it, there's a lot of little things that he's hinting at here, and a lot of little specific moments. Uh, Albertine's face as he kisses the first time, the way it's described, I, it's a thing I remember from my first reading of it because it's, it's described almost how it feels the first time you actually go in for your first kiss. The, the way that you sort of have this weird nose to nose heat moment and then the lips connecting and all of the different pieces and the way, the way it's described is he sees all the parts of her face and then they vanish and then they appear and other ones appear and it's just, it's so beautifully written. It is not an easy book to outline. Uh, there is another Deleuze book called uh, Proust and Signs, worth reading after you've read it, or kind of after you've read really the first book of In Search of Lost Time, the first, first one. Um, you can kind of get away with that if you want to cheat. Um, but it's worth sort of mentioning that because we're kind of going to start just diving through, I think, sentence by sentence, unless anyone else has a big thing they want to say at this point. Anyone? Anyone? Jack? JK? Seraph? Remka? Anyone? We are talking about some pretty... Not, not on Proust, no. Not on Proust. Uh, do we want to talk through that? We'll just dive in straight to the, the text then, I guess. Um, We've been talking at this point about kind of the, the efforts of schizoanalysis. There's a positive and destructive task. There's a few tasks it goes through. And it's destructive task, which is the elimination of uh, something. It's destroying something. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'm trying not to poison the well. Um, but there is a destructive task to schizoanalysis. It, it must destroy as part of its setup. Uh, it has to do this as quickly as possible but it has to do this 
with patient's care, and this is the line, by successively undoing the representative territorialities and re-territorializations through which a subject passes in his individual history. It's actually a clear sentence if you can get through all of the different meanings, <laughs> um, which is a lot because there's a lot of words there. Um, if I were to ask you to go through your history, pass through your history right now, you may remember various moments, experiences, things that you've done. As you do this, as you pass in your individual history, as you become you, as you discover these things and talk, we go through territorialities and re-territorializations. You do this and we describe them and we talk through them. And like as a schizoanalyst, you might say, um, this, the representative territorialities are the, the representative worlds, the spaces that you believe these stories have. The re-territorializations that you're passing through are sort of on that note as well. Um, Seraph says, so forgive me if I'm kind of on one here, but I think that one thing going on in this paragraph is the joke of the structure of the entire book. Yes. Yes. Uh, 100%. Like, that's one of my favorite parts about this paragraph too. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. You're, you're, you're a little early. Um, and the answer, is, it, it's both, Jack. It's both A.O. and Proust. They, he, it's very intentional. Hole in its parts. Hole in its parts, my friend. Hole in its parts. Um, uh, uh, JK, your mic keeps going off. If you could mute, that'd be great. Um, so as a subject kind of goes through their individual history, they're telling stories of why they are where they're at. Oh, my father was mean to me. Oh, um, I was poor when I was growing up. I was born white and in New York, blah, blah, blah. All these different things, these uh, the representative territorialities, not just literal land, but kind of the territorialities you come from. And the re-territorializations as they're sort of made through. You need to success successively undo them as they pass through their individual history. That's kind of how I understand this sentence. Anyone have a edge or take or questions on that? Because it's worth breaking down all of this paragraph. This paragraph's really good. It's really important. I like it a lot. So I want to spend time here. And I'm in charge, so we're going to do that. Especially if no one else talks. It makes it so de facto I am in charge. It's one of those fun things. Hmm. I guess for me, part of it is like, so there's this point about non, the non-personal, right? And that's kind of weird because they're talking, they're using the word his individual history um, to start out this paragraph. For me, whenever they're saying the subject, they're talking about the unconscious, right? And maybe that's just yeah, a French in, in this, way to translate but there, it. Specifically here, this is... Um, this to me is a subject of psychoanalysis, an analysand, um, uh, or even let, let's even say that it's, it is the full subjectivity. The subjectivity is still produced as it passes through its individual history. They may, they say his here and they, they go through by the end, the goal would be getting to the perverse lands of homosexuality. They would even say where man, woman are different. And they kind of make that shift throughout this, that you may have his straight white man individual history, but the goal would be undoing the representative territorialities and re-territorializations until you get to the point where you are breaking apart all of those things. So that way at the end, you have a, I don't even want to say non-binary, but a, a multi-sexed, non-human, 
at, at its core, which is the unconscious they're talking about and that kind of step. So I see them as juxtaposing the two in here, that it's trying to get the subject closer to that unconscious that you're talking about. And that's what I mean. For me, the subject is the unconscious. Um, and this is kind of like that death of man thing that Foucault talks about. And yeah, and I only I only make the point because like this is happening after it's existentialism and it's it comes up a lot in, in post-structuralist writing because it's a difficult but, thing to differentiate from. But if if representation can cause the five paralogisms, then what is produced after those is not the unconscious in the same way. Instead, the subjectivity that's produced after that is actually further away from what you might call the actual subjectivity that would be within the unconscious itself without the representations causing the paralogisms. So if we're talking about, uh, again, it's all imminent to itself. So there is a direct like link. But if we're talking about the uh, body without organs that is there, that is producing this, the representations that get thrown in that cause the paralogisms, that is the person that I then, as a schizoanalyst, have to deal with and talk to. And there is an individual history and an individual person there. And my goal would be to break down anything representative-wise, representational-wise, that may be causing the paralogisms to allow that person back towards their actual subjectivity that's produced purely. I mean, there's the personal and there's the non-personal, though, right? I mean, that's kind of the... And that's one of the difficult things about fitting this all together, especially as they introduce the perverse here. They have the exclusive disjunctions going on, right? The whole idea that you could be able, you you would be able to separate them, like you're saying, into the white uh, to a white category to a male category, am I right? That is relies on a certain perversion of a molar territoriality and an appeal to an exclusive disjunction. Right, right which like is what the which is what the sick patient is doing, and our job is to undo those and bring them back to their non-human sex and race. If someone as a patient comes in and says, um, you know why I'm depressed? It's because I'm a white man in this country and America was built for me. Do we go, excellent, you know you're not really white. Like you don't start there. The first thing you need to do is you need to go, okay, so what does this mean? What is whiteness to you? What is it to mean to be America? It's what are the, the first place, great care, slowly, as quickly as possible, but you undo the representative territorialities and re-territorializations through which a subject passes in his individual history. That, that subject that you're talking to does have an individual history in a very practical sense, especially as an analyst and, uh, which is the context that they're talking about here as a patient uh, within a psychotherapist's office. And th in that case, they have a specific set of life experiences that they've gone through that have produced them in this way and a, and a social order that has produced them. So I'm not understanding... Uh, white where you're saying there may be a conflict to me it's it's obvious it's the the underneath it all if we're talking about maybe some grand truth perhaps we're talking about a decentered subjectivity that actually is at the core of us but none of us are all of us are sick like there's a if we want to call it that all of us are still produced and the subjectivity produced we still have to work with and so that's where they start as they get to the end they have this wonderful line the narrator does not homestead in the familial neuronal lands of Oedipus, blah blah as they go through but they end at the very end where they say, um, he goes towards these new regions where the connections are always partial and non-personal. He's speaking about Proust specifically. The conjunctions nomadic and polyvocal, the disjunctions included, where homosexuality and heterosexuality cannot be distinguished any longer. 
because there's no such thing as man, woman, all of that. The world of transverse communications, where the finally conquered non-human sex mingles with flowers. The, they're allowing you to understand that all of it is sex, that it is not just man, woman, fuck, we're good. There's also not man, man, woman, woman in the meaningful sense. It's everything is sex all the time. And that's the sort of getting back to that thing. Such a voyage does not include great movements, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of what they're pushing back towards, that we're aiming back towards this, but from a position of having an analysand who's, or any of us, I suppose, I'm not exactly healthy myself, but in, uh, people who are broken by representation and undoing that. Yeah, it's the, the lines here. So let's go forward yeah. two sentences because I think it'll help. Um, there are several layers, several planes of resistance that come from within or are imposed from without. Again, he's talking about this subject. Schizophrenia as a process, deterritorialization as a process, is inseparable from the stases that interrupt it or aggravate it or make it turn in circles and re-territorialize into neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. As a process, there is no schizophrenic side to you that is like, oh, this left half, it's in the left quadrant. Here's the XYZ coordinates. It's all of it's mashed together. And if you talk about this giant mashed together mess of desiring machines, representation, all of this, it's one giant goo. It is not separable. We can't say, okay, well, here's the healthy part. There's the broken part. The, we can't to a point where the process, uh, the deterritorialization process, the blah, blah, cannot extricate itself, continue on and reach fulfillment, except insofar as it is capable of creating a new land. In each case, though, to get there, we must go back, seek the old lands, study their nature, their density. We must seek to discover how machinic indices are grouped on each of these lands that permit going beyond them. You can't simply leap to this place of, oh, now you're healthy. You have to join them on their journey through their territorialities and say, oh, well, what happens in this land? How do people do things here? Well, that's very interesting. Let's spend some time and maybe we can figure out where the boat is so we can head to the next one and do it again and again and again, because it's a process. And it has to be done this, this way. This is how I see him describing it pretty crisply, actually. Um, and this is, I'm, this is kind of my point, though, is you're talking about the new land, right? Um, no, talking about the old land looking for new land. Right, you're talking about a new territoriality. Correct. So part of what, part of what, it's interesting your focus on the analyst and the analyst stand there. Um, and certainly, I, I think you can definitely do that. The thing that strikes me here is they're using literature to explain it. Um, they're going into how one reads in search of lost time. and They're directly appealing to the idea that their reader would be trying to pin down the author, Proust, mm -hmm. by way of the book. And that's the representation, isn't it? to represent the, uh, the author by way of the work in the same way one would do such to Charlie Chaplin in his movie. Right. And in doing that move, right, one thing that the book does is it's, it's not really Proust's manifestation of himself per se, because they're going through the narrator, spider, the reader, there's all these different pieces coming together to create this, that are this unconscious in its production, right? And as much as the, there can be the erection of Proust, the author, 
and thereby the representation of Proust the author. To, to your point about the new land, right? There's a way in which the book itself is not only can enable that representation, but also destroys it. And this is where these pieces, how they interact, is I, I think the critical thing there. So this kind of a new land, is, is this, that would be the kind of a universal sense of, uh, of the self, you know, as, as opposed to the personal? You know, the, the personal would be the old land, but the new land would be the sense of, um, of this uh, inclusiveness within the universal? That's, that's kind of what I'm suggesting against, actually, is, I mean, and I'm not saying I have, the, I'm not saying I have the correct take here, but I'm, I'm suggesting that it might not be about the self and the person um, at that level, right, at that more, especially at a more Jungian level, that's usually the move, is to try and understand the archetype of the self. Um, I, I don't know if they're looking for the self here, I think what they're looking at is the way in which these pieces can enable that line of flight, right? Whereby like an indice of love, um, an index is reinvested, is completely altered. So I, I don't think we're necessarily disagreeing, Jack. I think we're saying it differently. Let me try to say another way. Their use here of In Search of Lost Time very specifically is intended to be almost a, a reverse uh, sort of ordering of it, where... Um, they call it specifically a great work of schizoanalysis. And let's talk through it because it is and has been called by more than a few critics. And it's very easy when you're reading it to go, oh, this is Proust just writing a biography. Like you could, I'm not saying you should, but it's totally easy to go, oh, it's just a fucking Proust writing a biography. Now, at any point you can go, oh, this is, it, you're reading, oh, this story right here in this place, in this thing, this is Proust. This is actually him coming through. And they're saying, nope, because Proust, and it's true, doesn't really allow you to ever hit that point. You can stop where you want, but if you keep going, it doesn't allow you to do the same thing. If we're talking about, an, and it's why I use the example of the analyst and analyst and, the, the process they're talking about is that you're not ever about actually curing the person. You're not trying to identify who they are or who they are at any given moment. You're constantly moving from one island to the next, the islands are just territorialities that is your job to help them undo. And as you undo it, you move to the next territoriality and you help them undo that until you kind of just keep going and they're able to develop a new land. This is the process that they talk about in search of lost time, where you go all the way through to this like insanely fantastical place. And it becomes very sort of disconnected and difficult sort of to describe as you get through all of in search of lost time. So it has a very magical quality to it. And then that, sort of ending, you've kind of reached this place where he's made something very much new by going through it. That's the process they're saying schizoanalysis is. All of these things, it's a territory, it's a singular story that we shatter apart and immediately we work on the next one and the next one and the next one. And the process is a destruction of the territorialities and then the re-territorializations that immediately follow that. Yeah, I, see, I, I see. escape, right? Yes, and ultimately it's about getting to a place not where they're on a new island. Like, that's not the point. The point is that the new island is being built. 
that there is the possibility of a new island because at some point in our lives, we are made up of, let's say 22 islands or whatever the fuck number we harden. If I were to say you harden over time and everyone by the time, my old joke, uh, people by the time they're 40, you know who they are the rest of their life. It's mostly fucking true. Let's be real serious. People get really hardened into who they are. It's a shame. That's the idea that they've made, like, let's say 30 islands and say we hit 30 islands and it's enough to kind of develop a personality and we've got those. It's not so much that we want to destroy those and then give them one new one. It's we want them to be able to make another new island and another and another and another because the kind of complexity that comes with that that's emergent, that is subjectivity, is what we're aiming to have. We want to create the process that creates the process further. And the production of new islands is that. Well, this is start, gets us to where Boskern's asking, won't each so-called land that you pass, won't they just fall back into their prior state? Like, is this the point to have a real personal reassessment or just shake the coherency of how they represent their own lives? And again, for me, the the personal is not the center. What's what's happening, I think what Brooks is trying to illustrate there is that the destructive task enables the um, so no longer is the exclusive disjunction kind of binding up production and um, it's not exactly maintaining a status quo, but it's preventing it's preventing a new, uh, basically a new reconfiguration of a production altogether, right? Where the, the whole sense of relationships, the distribution and the, the, the affects, the intensities uh, would be completely produced anew, right? The whole relationship would shift and the communication would shift. And yeah. that would mean that anything personal, any any aspect of that would be completely recreated. Right? Yeah, it so wouldn't be would necessarily, it wouldn't be obliterated, but it would be a thing that suddenly now is basically just other connections that you can add to whatever's coming next kind of thing. It's, um, it's kind of hard to describe like that, but it's not that things become personal. It's not a personal reassessment. We're not trying to get to your true self or any silly platonic notion like that. It's the problem is that over time we kind of develop our true self and we like to be very proud of that thing. And what happens is we stop developing and that's the end of the sentence, I guess. We just don't keep making new lands and new connections and new ways for things to connect. And we just keep connecting the same ones over and over and over. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really where they start in the chapter where they outline the difference between sexuality as production and reproduction versus the idea of uh, sexuality in that regressive sense, which is what Boskard, you're highlighting the, in your point, that is, I think, a really nice way of highlighting the regressive sense, that you just kind of keep reinstantiating a memory. Um, at some level, that would be the, the error that psychoanalysis is kind of making. To lose in Guattari's point is kind of like what Brutz is saying. The whole process of production would, would shift connections are now instantiated completely differently than they once were. Yes. It's um, a lot of it has to do with, and it's kind of a tough concept to grasp because the way representation works, we like to think of it in its very simple form as like a platonic idealism. Oh, I think of a book. I think of white. I think of black. I think of hetero. I think of Brooks. These things are, are labels. Great. But the challenge with representation is it's less what we call a thing um, there's an old um, Donald Rumsfeld saying, he's misquoting uh, uh, a great writer who said, there's kind of four quadrants. There's things we know we know, 
There's things we know we don't know. And there's things we don't know that we don't know. And uh, Zizek has the line, and I've always loved it, that there's a fourth quadrant, and it's things we don't know that we know. That's what representation sort of plays in. We don't really conceptualize, cognize the way representation creates territories and boundaries for us, but it absolutely does. Uh, the moment when we're taught uh, early on what man is, it's not that we have a list given to us, and here's the 900 things of what it means to be masculine or to be straight or to be a woman. These things are over time sort of taught to us, not explicitly, a lot of implicitly. And as we kind of get going, what man is becomes nebulous. And then when we tell someone that they have to use that word, now we're fucked. And we're in this place of representation where we don't know what we know. And as such, that fake sort of set of walls, that territoriality that is given to us that we're not really aware of, because if we were, we'd be able to step beyond it. It's always the horizon. You just break it down because we just, all that shit's stupid. Now that we still need words, we still need representation to be able to talk, but the ability for us to create new lands, to have new, tr truly new territories, we're not doing it when we're swimming in the same spaces with the same 20 connections. Instead, break down the representations that have made us up and the history that has made up me as Brooks, which has existed. There's a very specific line of con continuity that is me and break those down and then figure out what made them and then allow them to reconnect differently or allow other connections and get back to that non-human sex that mingles with flowers, a new earth where desire functions according to its molecular elements and flows. That's the line here. That's the line that I think is really powerful because to Jack's point, they're starting off in a place of personal, like it does. It starts off the paragraphs talking about him and his personal history and the patient and all that. But it says at the end, he goes towards these new regions where connections are always partial and non-personal, injunctions nomadic and polyvocal, the disjunctions included, where homosexuality and heterosexuality cannot be distinguished any longer. This space, this place where uh, desire functions according to its molecular elements and flows actually allows new lands to be made. And that's the push here. And that's the thing Proust does with In Search of Lost Time. You should probably read it. A lot of authors do it. It's, a, it's great writers do this. And so it's just really getting outside of all of those understandings of representation and being able to break them down for what they actually are. Uh, and that's a complex way to put it. I shouldn't have said it that way. It, break down where they come from and what the connections are that generate them. Does that make sense, Jack? Am I, are you following? Am I, am I close to saying a coherent word? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're getting at, at the meat of it. And this is one thing that's always difficult when you're dealing with the unconscious and that, right, is that it won't have, it, it doesn't act by way of the reference to yourself, right? It doesn't represent itself. Um, at least not the molecular, certainly not the molecular level, right? And I would say that this is definitely one of the challenges in this paragraph is like, right? I mean, to, to use your example of manliness, that's a quintessential example in our time, right? That keeps getting recreated new in different distributions, right? Manly functions are, are distributed anew over and over again. The the sense of what is manly is constantly shifting. Um, and that's part of the representationality of it is there's a way in which it's meant to create that exclusive disjunction. 
which is why I think the flowers thing is really nice because, you know, we do that. We think there's a male and a female component to the flower, right? The pistol and I think the set still or something like that. Um, but that's not what the flower is necessarily doing when it's doing its thing, right? In the same way that when we interact with the flower, we're not, I mean, certainly we're not touching the petals because it's a female part of the flower, are we? Or something to that nature. Bit of a tangential point there, but going back to your point, right? That's the destructive task, is that representation of the exclusive, and particularly the exclusive disjunction, right? Yes. Where you've got that Oedipal aspect in relation to what they're calling perversion, I think, is they're kind of getting at structurality here. Um, particularly so, right? Where those two things work together in, in this manner to create that, that exclusive disjunction, to create global persons and so forth, right? That's going to keep getting recreated, but that's not that's not the whole point. The whole point is that as much as it's being recreated, there's this aspect that it's co-conditioned by, co-extensive with, and that would be the molecular, which has the power to destroy that representation. It, yes, it has the and it's the destructive task ultimately is to do this. This is when they say destructive task, this is what they're talking about. And it's, uh, it takes time, you have to be careful, but it must be done quickly. And it's a, they'll get into that kind of in a moment and why, but it's, um, um, uh, Boskert asks, interested in getting into what heuristics by which new lands are created and how those new lands are validated. Like, how do you know when you've done it? And it's, it's a great question, actually. Um, they get a little bit into how that works. But again, I think it's a the schizoanalysis is not a one-time thing. Excellent. I'm off. It's, uh, it's a, it's a process and it, you are as a process, something that needs a process. And this is a thing you can be constantly kind of looking at. Am I creating new lands? Am I doing new worlds? Am I playing with new representations or am I stuck with the same ones that I'm kind of repeating over and over? And, um, uh, I think it's a, it's an ongoing bit. Um, it's a, a big play with it, I think, that would help. Uh, and at some point, um, I'll have uh, the logic of sense readings up. Uh, but it's, it's a much more clear definition, I think, from logic of sense about how uh, representation functions and how idealism and ideals and the way representation works messes with how sense and meaning are produced. I think it's, I think there's a lot of one-to-one -one here personally. I don't know anyone else who's been in that reading can disagree, but I, it's been pretty powerful for me. So it's worth looking through. At some point I'll have the recordings up, I promise, someday. Um, well, actually it might be worth talking about the transpersonal self and going through that. Um, Seraph says, my intuition is that you're in new lands when you aren't rebutting old questions, but are rather acknowledging them while not being particularly interested in them. I would even say, uh, I would go one step further when old questions yield completely new answers. Um, uh, Deleuze, uh, I have very, very particular ways of looking at the world up until Deleuze. And it, it kind of 
I don't want to say it was like a self-justification. It was a lot of it, but it was like, you know, making my way through. I had a very particular understanding of a handful of things. But the way Deleuze has us looking at the process of life through Bergson and all of these other writers, um, this is absolutely anti-Oedipus. Um, who said it's not? Is that, is that 92? No, he, they're, they're confused because we have the anti-Oedipus chat and then we have the anti-Oedipus channel. So they got, oh. they got their, uh, oh. their links um, crossed. You're, you're good. <laughs> all right. Um, it happens. <laughs> um, the, uh, the way Deleuze has us looking at things, like, for example, let's take about how people look at capitalism. And let's talk about a fucking problem with the left. I'm going to soapbox for a second. Uh, problem with the left in general, uh, fuck the right, everyone, is that we have this idea that money equals evil. I'm not saying that rich people aren't shitty. I'm not saying that people don't exploit people. There's none of those things. But there is an essentialization in the representation of any of these things that changes how we react to it. If I talk about capitalism as evil, that's it. We no longer break down what that means or what the parts are. I can't sit down and have a conversation with a more traditional leftist and say, you know, what's interesting is the way capital functions versus how uh, commodity money functions. They immediately get pissy, even though I think that's actually a big part of Marx's work. Most people don't even read Marx. So it doesn't matter. This discussion, as I just said, and I'm not wanting to go down that road, but the, that idea is itself something that is anathema to just how capitalism is talked about for capitalists and for leftists. The representation that is used is the system. And there's no meaning behind it. What do you mean by capitalism? Do you mean the ability for people to trade things? Pretty sure we're going to have to have that. How about a marketplace? What does that mean, actually? Not just what the representation is. And we start getting sucked into these terms that start having a lot of really difficult... There's no way to break them down. There's just no way to really break it down. And we stop creating. If you want what capitalist realism is... It is the left sitting screaming about capitalism instead of actually diving in and trying to figure out how the fucking thing works so we can change parts of the machine. They're sitting and screaming at their car for not working instead of checking the lights, checking the sensors and checking the oil and trying to figure out actually how to, oh fuck, that turns out there's no engine. Like they just yell at the car. That kind of thing, when you're doing that, you're stuck within representation and we get there. This is the neurotic, the paranoiac, all of these things, when we're directly dealing in relation to a representation, that's it. It is creating us, it is creating our reactions, and it's setting us up. If we can break it down and start actually understanding, like, what are the literal desiring machines underneath all of it? Where did we get this story from? Oh, it's ugh. break it down, break it down, and then allow us to start connecting other pieces and then we can make a new land. And in that new land, there isn't capitalism or markets or any of that. I don't know what's there. I can't tell you because we haven't fucking made it. But there's something new there where there's a lot of stuff from old connected in different ways. They'd, someone from the 1800s would come out here and go, oh, that's your tax collector. Now we have the IRS. Oh, you have that many tax collectors. It means a different thing 200 fucking years ago than it does now. And it meant a different thing in medieval times. Like these things are representations that change their meaning, but we are stuck within them and they tend to control us. The only way we can get out of this, and this is not just for capitalism, not for anything, but personally, as you can get through it, as you say, I am man, I am woman, I am this, I am that, I am... American, I am French, I am anti-American, I am whatever. 
like break those down and build a new land for yourself because that's where you start making interesting connections. That's my soapbox. Sorry. So I really, really, really think Deleuze's work is really important. And I get really angry lately at a lot of the online discourse I see. I'll stop now. Sorry. I had an argument with someone recently online about that. Um, That's certainly difficult, right? But I mean, one one thing I would focus on in what you said is that, right? So if you if you put it just in terms of three syntheses at a really simple level, right? To your point, that new land is the enablement of new relationships, mm-hmm. new new connections, like you're saying, and new things involved in that connection, new flows new breaks, uh, and they're simply different, right? We don't know, like you're saying, we don't know what they're necessarily going to do, um, but that's okay because what's important is the unconscious is flowing in this manner. That's, yes. that's where the moral is um, in, this, in this book. Uh, to your point about like, uh, like putting it back in manliness or, or markets or whatever, right? This is the point about functionality and distribution, right? What things are doing in, in a given assemblage, right, is related to that distribution and how things function. Say, like I said earlier, like a manly or a womanly function of a flower or somebody touching a flower, right? There's that aspect where that can be in that exclusive point, right? Um, and I understand that's not the greatest example, but we're just going to run with it because I like flowers. Um, but I don't necessarily look at them for their womanly parts. Anyways, uh, there's that aspect of that, right? But what those things are actually doing can be represented in that way in such a way that they should be doing what's appropriate to that category. And then there's the aspect of those those functionalities, what's been coded particularly as simply um, operating according to the body without organs, right? This is kind of where they keep talking about plane of consistency, right? There's this aspect where the body without organs um, can play a major role in changing things at that level. I'm not getting too deep into it right here because I think it comes later in chapter in section four, but that's where the breakthrough is, right? That actual plane, that new territory, that new land um, is itself kind of destroyed and recreated. There's a weird thing that happens when people get actual amnesia, not like Fred Flintstone amnesia, but like real amnesia. And uh, they maintain some level of habits. There's a weird, it's weird. People are weird and we keep some of that shit. But what they've often seen also is that those people just kind of start from that point and they don't really know how they're supposed to connect things. They're supposed to put these things together. That's supposed to, again, this representation, how it plays in this is, I think, deeply important to this. I'm going to get off my soapbox. I'm sorry. I keep getting a little pissy about all this, but it's really, I really like this paragraph. Um, I want, I don't, maybe it's not worth going directly through all of the examples from uh, In Search of Lost Time, but it's uh, the thing I like, the phrase they use here, I wanted to focus on for a moment about Proust is they call him the narrator's spider. It's really, um, it's an important phrasing because they don't see it as a linear thing that is happening here. Instead, it's the 
again, to go into their other works, it's the diagrammatics, the web that Proust is putting together of all of the elements. Um, those, those things that he's making, it's not uh, that he's creating a singular story, writing line by line, but instead he never ceases undoing webs and planes, resuming the journey watching for the signs or indices that operate like machines and will cause him to go on further. He's reactive and moving and constantly looking for that next step. And I thought that was a really uh, kind of ingenious way to describe Deleuze's sort of art theory. Um, he uses very similar phrasing around Francis Bacon and a few others. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that part too, because even, right, I mean, like, you know, at some level, writing is biogra autobiographical. That's not the quite the dispute here, though. The dispute is that you could read somebody's writing and by way represent who they are, right? I mean, that's, that's, gets into some really problematic moves. But to your point, like, I, I agree with you, right, that every word that Proust writes, the spider does something to. The narrator is, is, doing things to the writing it's creating distributions and that right it's, it's changing connections breaking flows creating intensities the 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 way that in search of lost time ends uh, to, it's worth hitting on as well. They have the lines here, the psychotic earths with their conjunctions in place. Charlou is therefore surely mad, and Albertine too, perhaps, are traversed in their turn to a point when the problem is no longer posed, no longer posed in this way. The narrator continues his own affair until he reaches the unknown country, his own, the unknown land, which alone is created by his own work of progress, the search of lost time in progress. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, it's a Books have been out for a few years, so it doesn't matter. Um, the book is the result of the experiences within the book. Uh, it ends with him kind of real, the, the narrator kind of realizing essentially a lot of what we're discussing here about how people pile themselves on their own experiences on top of itself. We are this sort of accumulated essence of ourselves. And for him to properly tell the story of his people uh, and the people he's known, and Charlou at the end is decimated and very much cared for and broken. Um, and it's, a, it's, I find it a powerful story, but it's this idea that he, in order to do this, the only way to tell someone's proper story is not to write it linearly, but to create this sort of network of stories to explain all the baggage that go into the building of a person. Um, it's very reminiscent of uh, Charlie Kaufman's uh, Synecdoche, New York. Um, uh, at least it strikes the same note for me. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, the main character, uh, played by Philip Hoffman, who's fucking amazing in it, um, decides to make a play uh, about uh, life. And he's telling a single story, but he soon realizes that in order to tell any single story, he has to tell the story of everyone around him and around them and around them and around them and around them. And over time, uh, he ends up actually just kind of creating a second Synecdoche, New York, inside of a warehouse as the world sort of falls apart right before he dies. It's a phenomenal film. 
but it's very much about the idea that everyone is the lead story character in their own story. All the stories are intertwined and yet everyone's still the main character. And it's a really powerful sort of meaning behind it that is very similar to this. Um, we are the network effect of ourselves. Notes? But does Philip Seymour Hoffman, does he liquidate his grandmother? Um, no. That's one of my favorites, one of my favorite phrases in that paragraph. <laughs> Liquidation of the grandmothers. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I have to, I'm going to stop the reading for a moment. John Claire, have you not seen the world's greatest Star Trek episode? Darmak and Jalad, where the walls fell. It's genuinely, like, I'm an ass about this stuff, but it's fucking good episode. And you totally need to see it. Like, that's, I, I really like it. It's, it's, it doesn't really hold up super well, but I really love the idea behind it and what they're doing. It's super good. Shaka, when the walls fell. That's all I have to do. Search Shaka, when the walls fell, I think. Um, Darmak and Jalad. What is the name of the episode? Now you're going to make me look it up. I'll, I'll send you a link. I used to have that on a t-shirt. I love that fucking episode. All right. Uh, I will continue to the next paragraph. Look at us, a second paragraph. And it's another. I'll answer. It's not, not as bad. It's only a full page. Okay. The patient resumption of the process, or... On the contrary, it's interruption. The two are so closely interrelated that they can, be, they can only be evaluated each within the other. How would the schizo's voyage be possible independent of certain circuits? How could it exist without a land? But inversely, how can we be certain that these circuits don't reconstitute the lands only too well known of the asylum, the artifice, or the family? We always return to the same question. From what does the schizo suffer, he whose sufferings are unspeakable? Does he suffer from the process itself, or rather from its interruptions, when he is neuroticized in the family, in the land of Oedipus, when the one who does not allow himself to be Oedipalized is psychoticized in the land of the asylum, when the one who escapes the family and the asylum is perverted in the artificial locales? Perhaps there is only one illness, neurosis, the Oedipal decay against which all the pathogenic interruptions of the process should be measured. Most of the modern endeavors, outpatient centers, inpatient hospitals, social clubs for the sick, family care institutions, and even anti-psychiatry, remain threatened by a common danger, a danger which Jean Ouray has been able to analyze in depth. How does one avoid the institutions reforming an asylum structure or constituting perverse and reformist artificial societies or residual paternalistic or mothering pseudo-families. We do not have in mind the so-called community psychiatry endeavor whose admitted purpose is to triangulate, to oedipalize everyone, people, animals, and things, to a point where we will witness a new race of sick people implore by reaction that they be given back an asylum or a little Beckettian land, a garbage can, so they can become catatonic in a corner. But in a less openly repressive manner, who says that the family is a good place, a good circuit for the deterritorialized schizo? Such a thing would be very surprising, to say the least. Quote, 
The therapeutic personalities of the familial surroundings. The whole town, then. The whole neighborhood. What molar unit will constitute a sufficiently nomadic circuit? How does one prevent the unit chosen, even if a specific institution, from constituting a perverted society of tolerance, a mutual aid society that hides the real problems? Will the structure of the institution save it? But how will the structure break its relationship with neuroticizing, perverting, psychoticizing, castration? How will the structure produce anything but a subjugated group? How will it give free play to the process when its entire molar organization has the function of binding the molar process? Even anti-psychiatry, especially sensitive to the schizophrenic breakthrough in the intense voyages, tires out and proposes the image of a subject group they would become immediately reperverted, with former schizos guiding the most recent ones, and as relays, little chapels, or better yet, a convent in Ceylon. So, this fucking exactly good pair. So good. Asking too, right? Yep, hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. Boskard wasn't actually asking. Boskard was reading ahead and trying to, trying to look clever, yeah. right? Helping us, uh, leading us, leading us. Boskard was leading us into the next point. That's right. <laughs> um, I mean, this is there to some somewhat of this paragraph up, uh, and then we can kind of dive through. Um, it is no secret that Guattari and Deleuze were generally against what we would consider even today the modern. Uh, I don't know, asylum, mental health facility, whatever you fucking want to call it, uh, set up. Because ultimately, when you put people in these situations and you basically are edipalizing them or you're putting them in situations and structures, how do you not? It's a very good question. How the fuck do you not force someone to become uh, sort of within that structure when you're trying to heal them? How do you not keep that same shit going or simply supplant one broken sense of edipalization with another. Uh, it's a really great line um, uh, they have in this. Um, it's, it's just great. Yeah, structure is not remedy. And, and you want to you say a bit, Jack, there? Because that's 100% what it is. Yeah, so uh, pre previously I, I suggested that like, uh, structure is related to perversion here um it's not the same it's not exactly the same thing but they've they've done their critique of structure and they've done their critique of perversion so we can start putting it together right because one of the things they're responding to in this book and uh, certainly Deleuze does and arguably Guadari too throughout their careers is uh, right they're concerned with the the movement of structuralism in France right and they take pains to put that stuff to work without without this very problem that something like a commitment to a structure or a new structure would be um, enough to remedy this, right? So like to put it here, right? Um, and this kind of goes back to their critique of familialism, right? Like a familial structure or the structure that is simulated by familialism, right? Is nonetheless conditioned by uh, the socios, right? And however that structure can act with perversion is nonetheless conditioned by the socius here at capital. How we encounter exclusive disjunctions and how we encounter connections and effects therefore has 
a relationship to that conditionality, right? That conditioning. Um, Remka's question is, do they mean to say that with every schizophrenic deterritorialization, gotta take a breath, <laughs> a reterritorialization will always bring the subject back to repression of the existing system. I don't think it's every, I don't think their point is that every, um, every deterritorialization is the erection of a new repression. I think their point is that every destruction, every time um, flows break free in that, there will be a way in which, because there's always that countervailing pressure of the socius and the body of that organs, right? This kind of classic Freudian tension. Um, there will be new representations erected, just like there's new senses of manliness. Um, but there's always the task of uh, destroying those, right? And this is part of the, their their idea of destruction. Their critique here is, I think, that anti-psychiatry in that they want to tear down the representation so as to work with the structure, right? They're just perverting the two things, or rather, they're caught in a system of perversion. They're not actually getting to the point where that that larger importance of um, creating a line of escape is enabled. So they're not even getting to a point where, where production has completely shifted and now a new representation um, is taking place on that. Anti-psychiatry here is suffering from the point of like, there is a new representation, but it's not of a new molecular production. It's just of, the, of a, a perversion of the system, right? Perversion of the structure. So this undercuts a lot of our sensibilities especially today, going back to Brutz's point about um, politics. This undercuts a lot of how we think about politics, or at least how I've, I see us thinking about politics in a very general discursive sense. So Remka, the line, uh, psychiatry, anti-psychiatry, not apart from each other, but in a sense related. Um, they are systems built against other systems, which means that they utilize the representation of the other as well. Um, if I say that I'm against a thing, it's, why don't I put it? In high school, um, there was like this feeling, I don't know if it's changed since I've become old, but there were the cool kids and then there were the kids who like, fuck the cool kids, I'm gonna do the opposite. Ultimately playing into the system of what coolness was. And then there were people who just didn't give a shit. I guess, let's talk about those three sort of setups. That thing, when we're talking about the structure and understanding that and putting yourself within it, against a thing, with a thing, under a thing, whatever it may be, putting, as they use as the example here of uh, schizophrenics healing and then basically passing it on, like passing the baton and, and the relay, which is horrifying when you think about it, um, tiny little chapels, uh, the process basically is still ultimately the system. We're putting it in the person, but... You can do that. It's really, really not hard to do. And so how do we break away from said systems? Not so we're anti them, so we're still stuck within ultimately the system itself, but instead taking a step beyond. Um, the anti-monarchism, anti-despotism, no one would say is capitalism. But it did. So it's this kind of thing. Don't be thinking about the large-scale represent what's a despot. Oh, we want to go against that. It's There's a shitload of pieces that make up what a despot is, producing actual existing machines. 
They're organized in a very particular way to create the social sphere we live in. You as well, by the way, tons of machines also doing the same fucking thing. Tons of social machines doing that to you too. So let's find all the machines and just sort of maybe can we rearrange them a little bit and then maybe you have a new machine that's over there that we can build and a new representation, a new land you can build, a new territorialization. And that's the, that's the push. It's not just saying, I'm no, not that, because it still puts you in the same sort of overall setup. And they laugh here, and they were very much making fun throughout this book, sort of sarcastically, of anti-psychiatry as a movement, because they wanted to be very clear, they are not that. They are not anti-psychoanalysis. They are schizoanalysis, which is a complete diversion in a different direction. Right. I mean, they're upfront about their re-engagement, right? And that's, that's the big thing is they are arguably able to change psychoanalysis to the point where it can be schizoanalysis, right? And it's, you know, it's no longer kind of the issue, right? And this is kind of their point about the subject subjugated group thing here, right? Is that what they're kind of getting at is like, you know, the anti-psychiatrists can erect these new institutions, um, but aren't they kind of using the same structure? And if they're using the same structure, have they actually changed the conditions of production? Because if they haven't changed the conditions of production, right, what have they changed? Well, they've changed the representation and maybe the structure to some degree, right? Certainly maybe the, the way it looks. But that's not the revolutionary breakthrough, right? That's not the transversal connections they're talking about. Uh, the the one I always use is the co-ops because I know that's one of the big discussions, um, and it's not because I'm against co-ops. It's because I I think there's a really similar point to be made in that going to just like a democracy tomorrow in the workplace. Well, I mean that's a nice idea. Don't get me wrong, but is that really going to change how people are produced altogether? It's going to change the structure and it will change the way people are represented. Absolutely. But certainly democracy is not the condition by which production is taking place, is it? Democracy can only be conditioned by production. And that's kind of the inversion there. Who's on Twitter? Yeah. Eat my shit and hair at ddqc.com. Um, I've heard people talk about what I, Seraph says, I've heard people talk about what I think is a really good characterization of this satanic subversion. That is to say, yes, I accept your premises, but everything you think is good is in fact bad. The problem is accepting the premises. It's exactly that, but it's, it's implicit in the representation. That's a, the thing we basically spent all of chapter two and three going through and a lot of chapter one is the way representation functions makes it implicit. And we don't realize that representation's a bitch. All right, cool. Uh, any questions on this paragraph? Because I feel like uh, reading the next one. Because it's an interesting thing. They want to politicize psychiatry. Mm -hmm. The only thing that can save us from these impasses is an effective politicization of psychiatry. And doubtless, with R.D. Lang and David Cooper, anti-psychiatry went very far in this direction. But it seems to us that they still conceive of this politicization in terms of the structure and the event rather than the process itself. 
Furthermore, they localize social and mental alienation on a single line and tend to consider them as identical by showing how the familial agent extends the one into the other. I'm going to first read the footnote before continuing. Social alienation comes for the most part to overlap the diverse forms of mental alienation. Those admitted into a psychiatric hospital are admitted not so much because they are sick as because they are protesting in a more or less adequate way against the social order. The social system in which they are caught thereby comes to reinforce the damages wrought by the familial system in which they grew up. This autonomy that they seek to affirm with regard to a micro-society acts as an indicator of a massive alienation performed by society as a whole. So just to reread Deleuze's line, they localize social and mental alienation on a single line and tend to consider them as identical by showing how familial agents extend the one into the other. And go back, what did a spider do who was writing a story? Between the two, however, the relationship is rather that of an included disjunction. This is because the decoding and the deterritorialization of flows define the very process of capitalism, that is, its essence, its tendency, and its external limit. But we know that the process is continually interrupted, or the tendency counteracted, or the limit displaced, by subjective re-territorializations and representations that operate as much at the level of capital as a subject, the axiomatic, as at the level of the persons serving as capital's agents, the application of the axiomatic. But we seek in vain to assign social alienation and mental alienation to one side or the other, as long as we establish a relation of exclusion between the two. The deterritorialization of flows in general effectively merges with mental alienation, inasmuch as it includes the re-territorializations that permit it to subsist only as the state of a particular flow, a flow of madness, that is defined thus because it is charged with representing whatever escapes the axiomatics and the applications of re-territorializations in other flows. Inversely, one can find the form of social alienization, alienation, in action in all the re-territorializations of capitalism, inasmuch as they keep the flows from escaping the system and maintain labor in the axiomatic framework of property and desire in the applied framework of the family. But this social alienation includes in its turn mental alienation, which finds itself represented or re-territorialized in neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. The mental illnesses. You, you <sighs> may want to just go right into the next paragraph because yeah, I don't, I don't think we can do stop this. there. I don't think they, they can always, stop there. They always I, give I, you the critique of something, and they always put the critique in the next paragraph. Yeah, they 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 draw it out really cleanly in the next. I do want to go back to just a couple lines in here because just as a paragraph, it's worth when we go back and we're going to have to review both of these together. In here, they're directly agreeing with the line from Lang in some sense. They're talking about how capitalism functions, but it's not capitalism on high some economic system. It's the function of capital as how we learn, how we're taught, how we are axiomatized, how representation serves, and how we are made agents of it. We are made agents of it in the application of the axiomatics. And all of these re-territorializations representations operate at the level of capital as subject, which is the axiomatic overall. It's 
really important to understand we're talking about this is the functioning of our entire socius, which means not just this is capitalism over there, the entirety of how our social structure is built has this at its core. This is not because you buy things. This is not because of how a market works. This is the entirety of the socius at its core works like this. This is the problem. And this social alienization includes in its turn, mental alienation, which finds itself represented, re-territorialized in neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. To continue, a true politics of psychiatry or anti-psychiatry would consist, therefore, in the following praxis. One, undoing all the re-territorializations that transform madness into mental illness. Two, liberating the schizoid movement of deterritorialization in all the flows in such a way that this characteristic can no longer qualify a particular residue as a flow of madness, but affects just as well as just as well the flow of labor and desire of production, knowledge, and creation in their most profound tendency. Here, madness would no longer exist as madness, not because it would not have been it would have been transformed into mental illness, but on the contrary, because it would receive the support of all the other flows, including science and art. Once it is said that madness is called madness, it appears as such only because it is deprived of the support and finds itself reduced to testifying all alone for deterritorialization as a universal process. It is merely its unwarranted privilege, a privilege beyond its capacities, that renders it mad. In this perspective, Foucault announced an age when madness would disappear, not because it would be lodged within the controlled space of mental illness, the great tepid aquariums, but on the contrary, because the exterior limit designated by madness would be overcome by means of other flows escaping control on all sides and carrying us along. To quote Foucault, everything that we experience today in the mode of the limit, or of strangeness, or the unbearable, will have joined again with the serenity, the positive. So much said in those two paragraphs. Um, I need to get some water. Uh, you want to start, Jack? Does anyone want to start? Uh, yeah, I, I can kick it off. All right, I'll be back. It's one of those nice moments for the Foucault quotes, actually. One sentence. Some, some of those Foucault quotes are um, one sentence. That's like three sentences, right? So also the, known for his page-long paragraphs and then some. Lovely writer, though. But yeah, my suggestion to, to push forward into this next paragraph is precisely because they lay out these three criteria, right? They this is common for this book. You'll see them go into a critique um, of something, but they won't give you the conclusion until after the critique in the following paragraph. And I don't think that's bad writing in any way, but I think it's difficult for a, writing, uh, for a reading group going paragraph by paragraph because we're looking for that conclusion um, to kind of reread that paragraph with. But so those are the three things then, right? What would a politics of psychiatry be? Well, Lang and Cooper certainly take it very far. But there's a problem, right? And those problems are at these two levels, right? 
undoing all the re-territorializations that transform madness into mental illness. So this is kind of Brut's point about playing into the representation, right? Is that if madness comes to represent the revolutionary, well, on one on one level that is kind of useful because then we, you know, they say earlier on, right? You, yeah, you, it might be true that you um, deduce from the representation the, uh, the the molecular, but at the same time you don't want to keep keep the molecular in this representation, right? Because unless it's kind of like uh, get some of the birth of the clinic in that, right? There's a point in which if you, in, in doing so, right, that perversion of it, that perversion of the, uh, the molecular in that sense, um, it's going to lose its revolutionary potential, right? Which is kind of what I think they're getting at here with this um, this critique of laying in that is like the social alienation, the mental alienation, maybe that's getting at some important problems but it's also keeping that um, it's keeping that which is represented by madness in the state where it's not going to be able to create the breakthrough, right? Because we're going into the representational at this point. We're going right back to the structure. We're not going behind it to the to to the uh, the molecular more so, right? The second aspect being liberating the schizoid movement of deterritorialization all the flows in such a way that this characteristic can no longer qualify a particular residue as a flow of madness, but affects just as well the flows of labor and desire of production, knowledge, and creation in their most profound tendency. I think it's clear in this next sentence, here madness would no longer exist as madness, not because it would have been transformed into so-called mental illness, but on the contrary, because it would receive the support of all the other flows including science and art, once it is said that madness is called madness and appears as such only because it is deprived of this support, first paralogism, and finds itself reduced to testifying all alone for deterritorialization as a universal process. Before I turn it over to somebody else to comment, that last part's really what um, sticks out to me is this point at which this representation of um, of the schizophrenic and that of the, of the the potential we're speaking of as mental illness here, or rather as madness and thereby mental illness. Um, not only is that putting the revolutionary into that box, right? It's putting it in a box where it becomes the global person, or said differently, where that madness is thought to represent any other production or reproduction. Right, this is that point about regression again, where it's as though it's as though what we're getting at is we're saying if we could just make that thing happen again like it did then, right, we could reproduce that change. But that's the regression, right? That's one of the problems with psychoanalysis is we're trying to regress the thing and creating a teleology. We're not taking the contingency into a, a, into full account. But I'll let someone else um, comment now. Well, it's the line, um, I, I, I really adore this paragraph, the lines around how madness works here. Um, the deterritorialization of flows in general effectively merges with mental alienation, in as much as it includes the re-territorializations that permit it to subsist only as a state of a particular flow, a flow of madness, that is defined because it is charged with re representing whatever escapes axiomatics and the applications of re-territorializations and other flows. Uh, what's weird 
And we use that term weird and we say things like that and it's instantly defined as normative. Even if we say we're very happy to be weird, that is literally continuing that same thing. We're, we're playing within the axiomatics and we're playing inside of them. And uh, they talk about how it goes back and forth and all of that. But with weird, madness would go with that. You're outside of the norm. You're not playing with it. And as long as that limit exists, I'm not even sure necessarily you're saying we need to, and it's, I'm not sure, I, um, some, some people say, the, the loser saying we all need to go schizo, I hardly, I hard disagree with that. These kinds of lines help people sort of back that up. But my reading of it is, as he says in the next paragraph where he's talking, and I'm just going to continue to it, he's mentioning Foucault, he's talking about all these. The, the challenge is when we talk about having limits, those limits are by nature the axiomatics. They're, they're constructed by such. And these, these limits are the lands that we are making, and they are the representational conglomerates of where we're stuck. And so as long as these lands exist, enslaving all of us, we will have madness. It is not that someday we will not have madness in the sense of we will uh, have turned it into mental illness, as they say, but instead that by eliminating these limits and by not thinking of that, but instead getting back to desiring machines, we won't have such a category. Why would we? There's no limit. Things just kind of just go. And that changes how we handle people, uh, especially those uh, who are suffering from these things or it, all of us. It changes how we handle humanity just by going through this and having it in that direction. Now, like Rim Rimka nails it, and the way that mental illnesses are defined by their symptoms, not by the madness. It's, it's all symptoms and you have to kind of trace it back and go back in. And uh, it's, it's the result of things that we tend to claim is the thing. And as such, it, it limits us across the board. Well, and this is where the deprivation is um, really critical, I think, too. I mean, um, as we're going through, like, defund the police and that, you know, uh, and I don't have a soapbox to stand on. I, I'm only here to point out a potential problem I, I see with it is that um, something like a shift, and this is not an argument for or against it, uh, just to restate that, but something like a shift to social work, right? I see that alongside a discourse that is actively talking about mental health. Um, certainly with recent school shootings, um, that is becoming a more and more a focal point, right? And, you know, I'm not trying to do that. Any no, I, 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 I can jump in. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll jump in on the school shooting one. I can do that one. We do a really fucked up thing where we talk about the result of a thing and then we stigmatize everything that built up to it instead of going, hey, uh, so what caused it? Shut up, don't ask, take pills. Different, menta different mentality. Sorry, Jack. Yeah. I, I, have, I have a feeling that was yeah. your point. Not only that, but anytime there's a shooting in that, right, what that opens up for as a condition in this new assemblage is that by, by way of mental health is an exclusive disjunction, right? And this is part of the double bind is you'll never really know if you're in or out of that, that category. Um, you know, you'll always kind of find yourself having been produced in that, that kind of paralysis of it all. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of the concern for me is that something like mental health in that sense, right? This is part of their point about the representation of it all. Is anything that's functioning in that event, the way that it functions, and because of, by way of its production, we're going to lose all of that 
because there's this universality in the mental health, right? And that point there is this is the deprivation. What we're what we're doing by by way of losing that is we're basically taking that flow, we're taking uh, an instance of happening, and that's going to become the the condition by which, or rather the representation, but a point about conditioning that's going to become the condition for how these things are thought to be produced going forward, and it gets into some scary consequences. Well, uh, the just take school shooting as a great example. It's the 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 natural need for the normative or those who are within the normative or ascribed to the we'll say the axiomatic framework of capital or our society the need for us to not identify with a school shooter is so fucking huge um a black kid goes out and kills people uh they do not the mental health is not the first thing that they talk about because non-normative that's why it said, oh, you're othered already, so we're just going to use that. But the moment it becomes the norm is doing it, then suddenly it becomes a secondary thing because the norm can't be doing things that aren't normal. That sounds tautological, but that's what they're referring to here. Anything that is non-normative has to be weird because we live in that framework. We're playing in that place. So as we sit inside of this and we talk about mental health or we talk about these other elements, we need to constantly be very aware of, as we say someone is mad, we're defining ourselves not only as not mad, but we're also creating an edge to our own existence and meaning. So our possibility space closes up really fast as soon as we start doing shit like that. The more madness we find, sure, there's a guy on the corner screaming about a gibberish words and he had a spike through his head. Call that guy mad. We've done it. We've started the process. And then how much, how long does it take before, um, you know, women who masturbate too much are considered mad and put inside of asylums? Real thing. Um, it doesn't take a lot for us to get to that point because once we're doing it, we're doing it. Once we've defined it, we're doing it. And the opposite is not to say, oh, well, let's, Let's fix this and we'll move it to mental illness. And it's, let's not, no, it's to understand that we need to not limit ourselves and we need to talk about the actual source of problems, not the resultant symptoms and limit reality. Now they redesigned schools. The school shooter thing, um, obviously I'm fairly familiar with a lot of the background stuff there. The insane levels that they go to to justify not having to look at our society as a thing um, my favorite part of Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine is everyone thinks it was literally like anti-gun when it wasn't like the whole point of it, um, was because it was trying to figure out why this happened at its base. Not saying it did even close to it, but people have that assumption. Oh, it's, but you're not going to say it's because of the thing I like. That's my thing. I like that. And I like this and I'm this, these are normative. Can't be normative things that did it must be non-normative things. So Let's uh, get rid of black trench coats and makeup and blah, 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 and other shit. People are weird. But that's the thing we do. Humans are fun. Um, and I bring it up because there was one uh, recently near my, communi uh, my community on that. And th that was the thing that concerned me is like, I keep, you know, the, you keep focusing on mental health. And yeah, I mean, at some level, I can't disagree with that. Kind of like you're saying, I mean, there's, there's, there's a normativity there that, yeah. I mean, I would love to see improvements in mental health and that but that's kind of the point right 
this is where the axiomatic gets applied and the deprivation is possible. We're oh, and it, and it, it goes layers. We're not getting at the production of it all. Oh, and it goes layers because uh, Columbine shooters, Eric Harris, uh, was on uh, drug. He was on an SSRI. And uh, so everyone's like, oh, my God, mentally ill. Maybe the drug did it. Well, they don't know. It's like it's the process of the drug. He wrote about how uh, he was putting himself on and off of it in order to make himself more manic because he felt closer to God. Yeah, really nice job. Like this process of how we treat madness and how we handle all of this instead of getting at like a person's true lived experience, what's going on with them and getting kind of to that underlying layer that this is what they're screaming about that everyone's doing that we head towards the territoriality as hard as possible, trying to rein them in and put them into a tiny box in a tiny structure. And then we're surprised when they can't really come back to society in that way. And they're stuck in that box or they're broken and it's, it seems obvious to them. And I think if you following, it should seem fairly obvious to us. We did this to them. Like we built this person in this structure in this way. And the question is like, can you, well, it's the next paragraph is, uh, can you overdo it? I'm going to, any last notes on this before I move on? Because it's a uh, good next paragraph. And it'll probably be the last paragraph of the day. Um, Sarah, if I recall, it's a well-documented thing with people with SSRIs. Rate of suicide, amongst other things, increases when people start them for precisely that reason. Yes. It's, um, the treatment becomes worse. Um, but again, it's, a lot of it is, um, they're mad. They're on the other side. I can't identify with them. You must come back to normalcy. Instead of understanding that underneath it all, it is just desiring machines connecting and lived experience that's producing a person and maybe representation that's fucking them up pretty significantly. And, and this is why even alienation is not enough here, right? Because to move from this discussion on like uh, the SSRIs and that, right? I mean, this is part of their critique of Lang and, and Cooper here is that, you know, to put, to then take that aspect of mental health and that, right? already as a form of representation and put it in a kind of structure of alienation is still to miss the whole point, right? That the the, the production of what we're calling mad, uh, and this is kind of the irony of it all, is that the normalization is based on a, you know, a transcendent signifier, right? That which can be called mad is, and applied as such is going to be dependent on something to represent it. Right, and this is kind of that issue. Is even with the alienation, we'll find something that's um, applied in that manner. Right, but again, you know, we got to get at least for Deleuze and Guattari, right? We got to get at the things that actually produce the event, not just the event itself, but the actual production of it. Yes. All right, next paragraph, which is the last paragraph of 4.3. Everyone, everyone, we will be celebrating after this that we've actually completed the paragraph. Um, Postgard, I can't tell in their passage whether they're making a commentary of psychiatry and anti-psychiatry or if they're starting breadcrumbs for the task they're going to get into. They are directly critiquing psychiatry and anti-psychiatry from a third position, not from between them, not outside. They're saying... 
You're keeping the structure. Stop doing that. Don't look at madness. Look underneath it. Madness is a representation. Madness is a name we've called a thing. It just means non-normative. It means outside. It means weird. It means eerie. It means uh, the limit, strangeness, the unbearable. And eventually we can allow those things, as Foucault says, to rejoin with the serenity of the positive, which I fucking love that line. Um, it's an affirmation. It's an affirmation of all of that. And we will get into the tasks of schizoanalysis in the next couple of chapters, because uh, this is the destructive task they've been going through. It should be said, therefore be said that one can never go far enough in the direction of deterritorialization. You haven't seen anything yet, an irreversible process. And when we consider what there is of a profoundly artificial nature in the perverted re-territorializations, but also in the psychotic re-territorialization of the hospital, or even the farm family neurotic re-territorializations, we cry out, more perversion, more artifice, to a point where the earth becomes so artificial that the movement of deterritorialization creates of necessity and by itself a new earth. Psychoanalysis is especially satisfying in this regard. Its entire perverted practice of the cure consists in transforming familial neurosis into artificial neurosis of transference and in exalting the couch, a little island with its commander, the psychoanalyst, as an autonomous territoriality of the ultimate artifice. A little additional effort is enough to overturn everything and to lead us finally toward another far-off places. The schizoanalytic flick of the finger, which restarts the movement, links up again with the tendency and pushes the simulacra to a point where they cease being artificial images to become indices of the new world. That is what the completion of the process is, not a promised and a pre-existing land, but a world created in the process of its tendency. It's coming undone its deterritorialization. The movement of the theater of cruelty, for it is, it is the only theater of production, there where flows cross the threshold of deterritorialization and produce a new land. Not at all a hope, but a simple finding, a finished design, where the person who escapes causes other escapes and marks out the land while deterritorializing himself. An active point of escape where the revolutionary machine, the artistic machine, the scientific machine, and the schizoanalytic machine become parts and pieces of one another. It's like a fucking rallying cry right there. Well, this is why I liked your point earlier about when you were talking about the analyst with Proust. It was like, you know, I, and I hadn't really looked at it that way, but you're right to make that connection. It's like they're, the way they're talking about the reader there, it is kind of like the analyst looking at a, a text and trying to understand the, the psychobiography of the, the narrator. Or rather well, that, the author. That's because the, so not to jump straight to logic of sense and Proust and science, which I did bring into that. That's if you should read Proust and science, by the way, because that's basically his point, but it's this idea that um, the way that people tell their stories or the way stuff works is let's say um, a series of singular points that get put together and then there's a resonance between them that produces a phantasm and simulacrum, blah, blah, blah. The, this entire setup we're talking about here is an affirmation of the simulacrum. I, the reading we're doing of logic of sense, I cannot encourage everyone to start joining us. 
Uh, the last few weeks we've been going through uh, literally the simulacra. We'll be doing it again next Monday because it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I, it feels silly to say this because I'm not even sure I'm right, but much of the time I've been using the word simulacra or I've even understood it, it has been in a sardonic negative tone. I've, simulacra is not a th like good thing. It's like, oh, fuck, look at the simulacra of reality. What a fuck simulacra. Like, it's got that edge to it whenever I've used it. Well, Baudrillard specifically, I will just say, doesn't use it positively, certainly. It's pejorative. But for Deleuze, especially in this last essay, it feels like there's an affirmation of it, a play with it, a thing we can do as we start getting to that weird thing that makes the simulacra what it is. It's no longer the original. It's no longer just a copy. There's some edge to it that makes it weird, uncanny, odd, eerie. That's where we grab. And that's the positive work that we can do. That's actually a positive use of the simulacra. And as we start talking about what makes a simulacra, what makes all this, Proust and Signs is basically filled with this. There's so many, I don't want to say red herrings, but meanings on meanings on meanings that you take as someone who's reading through it, that as I, even now as I'm reading and I hear the word Charlou or I hear the other, the Charlous or other characters, I don't have an instant understanding of that person, but I have like a, sort of a mess in my head because it's an incredibly complicated book. Um, and that kind of thing is what they're talking about when they say that a psychoanalyst sits with the analyst sand on the couch and they go, hmm, now tell us about your father. And they tell a story and they go, hmm, obviously you would like to fuck your mom. Like it's like this really simple thing that happens on the couch when the reality is we are a complex network tapestry of all these happenings, which again, a lot of their stuff is making fun of how people mostly misread Proust. And once you've read Proust, go read a handful of reviews on Goodreads and you'll be like, holy shit, people misread it. So sorry to ramble for a second, but it's, uh, it felt like that was a cogent point. I mean, people love to look for the author, right? That's, that's why Barthes and yes. so many others will go to that, go to Proust particularly, as much as my army, right? Um, getting into this paragraph more too, I mean, this is part of where you start to get the answer to questions like, uh, how do you know you've done it kind of thing, right? Like this is why Chaplin and the, um, Chaplin that's in the the film, if that made sense, as much as the narrator Spider, which because I come from more of a literary background makes more sense to me that way. But that's part of the thing, right? Is that these guys or these these um, partial objects in, in the, the text, right? The film, it's not about them as people in this larger sense. It's about the way in which they open up this line of escape, right? The way that there's a changing of the limit itself, like like Foucault is talking about, right? That the, the 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 passing of the limit in this sense is to bring things back to their, um, right? Kind of taking them down from a, that transcendent plane, and the, you know to get at this point at which like they're back into um, a relation relationship with things at that imminent level. Uh, said more simply. that the deprivations ended, right? That that which is kind of withheld um, is no longer withheld and things can flow in a different manner. 
should probably say blocked off as opposed to withheld. That makes it sound like there's some dude, right? There's some some invisible hand. I right, right. Probably say blocked off there. Yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 not wrong. I I don't think it's wrong. I think it's very much in this direction. We're talking about this really strange point where, and it's I love some of the lines they have at the end. The the thing people want is they want when like capitalist realism and all these fucking writing around that. Um, tell me what comes next. What's the thing. Can you please define me the thing for me so I can just go. And it's not really the case that it is only, it is the only theater of production where the flows cross the threshold of deterritorialization and produce a new land. Not at all a hope, but a simple finding a finished design where the person who causes escapes causes other escapes. You become a chain reaction where by nature of crossing this threshold and going into this new land immediately around you, that new land begins to crystallize and destroy the old. You're, you help people escape this very strange thing. Capital does this exceptionally well, by the way, it, it maintains uh, itself on the outside of us. But it's constantly doing very much this. It's able to find a place and go, oh, shit, I can exploit this. Thank you very much. And then it does. And then it somehow finds another thing to exploit and another way to exploit it. So it's, uh, it's, definitely, it's definitely a real practical thing we can look at. But with like what we're doing next and what we're looking for, it's not screaming for, define it for me, set it up, and give me this promised pre-existing land. But instead... Give me the processes where what I'm doing next is new, is discovered. And by doing so naturally, it begins to have knock-on effects. Right, the little psychoanalytic flick of the finger, right? And that's kind of the funny thing is there's, there's kind of saying it doesn't necessarily take a lot, does it? Right, like it's, and I think they even say a little additional effort is enough to overturn anything. And to lead us finally toward other far off places, right? Yeah, and it's a uh, Boskard nail, this Boskard being sarcastic, but it's a uh, the Holland in- interpretation of all this is very much permanent revolution, is his take on this that it's intended to put us in a state where uh, we don't have a state, where we don't have a semblance of power, but instead we are constantly in a state of this revolution that we are finding new and that we are in some semblance of continually being built finished design rather than a land that we're comfortable in causing others escapes and our own. But this is the destructive task uh, that they're talking about often here. And then later is the positive task. We'll get beginning through all these. Um, The next week's is the first positive task. Um, As we get to that, and this is kind of uh, kind of that buildup. Yeah, man, I can't believe we got through this whole thing. Because we read that paragraph with the other one. Because otherwise, we've been like, are they trying to say this is good? No, and I remember we did that last time. I had I I distinctly remember that last time, and we just felt like assholes reading the next paragraph, going, "Well, we just wasted a half hour. I mean, maybe an hour actually." Because the con- and, and this is not necessarily bad writing, but it's just for our group, it's tough because we're doing paragraph by paragraph. We're because looking for the conclusion it. and it's in the next paragraph. Well, to say a, a way he says about Proust is uh, at any point, a person can read this and decide this is what Deleuze means. 
And uh, don't do that. We have to because we're in a reading group, but just don't do that. Just don't do that. Just keep reading. A, that paragraph was not just about that. It's about Anti-Oedipus too. It's about Thousand Plateaus for sure. <laughs> Um, I mean, even even that is kind of the point of simulacra, right? Is that like the speed? See, philosophy is weird in literature. We have like narrators. Um, the way this book is functioning on that, though, right? Like the aspect of the simulacra, the intensities and effects it's able to create. You know, Deleuze is, and this is kind of the funny thing about it. Deleuze has become another name of history, but he's not the only name of history, is he? I, I would vote next week we actually do a recap and discussion over all of this. Because the positive task as we immediately move in, it's, um, I think it's going to be necessary for us to have fully gotten through the full critique of representation here and have that very crisp and clear and set up. I, I'm open to ideas here, but it, this is such a significantly complex chapter and so fucking long i'm still going okay there yeah that's uh what no that's did i really go does it wow it is that long jesus christ yeah well i i would vote we uh do that thoughts i'm I'm definitely open to i mean this is about it's a, approximately a 30 page section right psychoanalysis yep. and capitalism yeah psychoanalysis and capitalism right um and certainly it's worth as i was going back to some of those earlier points it's worth doing um can we get some of you all to help us with questions you might have points you want to revisit and expand on can we get some feedback on kind of like what the group is really looking to, to go back to or revisit or reconsider whether on chat or in voice. I, I, I think I will do that in the Anti-Oedipus Reading Group channel. I'll create an, I'll add everyone and I'll create a thread specifically for questions about uh, this section. And actually I would almost say and everything before, actually maybe like everything up until, because here the, the destructive task is, this is less a literal destructive task because the positive task is very much intertwined in it. This is much more of a deep, deep critique of representation in capital. And it is in a very particular angle. So as necessary, things in this insist upon an understanding of things in previous sections. So I'd almost say, hey, at everyone, we're going to be diving into 4.4 in two weeks. But next week, we are doing everything up until 4.3 before we move into schizoanalysis what questions do you have that are referenced in 4.3 that we can go over and kind of having that as a thing? I think that might be a good idea. I, I like that a lot because if we, we can open it up to chapter four, so long as we keep it pointed in 4.3, exactly. just because it's this, this is, this is a brilliant chapter, but there's a lot of work in it to un unravel. But like you're saying, it all builds on itself. So it'll naturally come up as we're going through 4.3. I right? think so. You know, the diagrams <coughs> always come up, much to your, much to your chagrin, Brooks. <laughs> There's so much in here that just 
like it's again, this is where we start having all of the layers that have been sort of created. They start getting put together and then folded on themselves. And that doesn't happen in 4.4 as much. Like it, it necessitates these, these things, but I would say it's much more about the coalescing of these ideas in 4.3 that allows you to read 4.4, if that makes sense, because of how it's structured. I think this just, we have so much to go over and I want to make sure everyone's got what they need in it. So I'm going to do that. I'll do an ad everyone and then a thread and we'll just have everyone posting any questions related to any of these things. I think that would be a really great way to do this. Um, and we'll just have a much more open sort of discussion and talk. I'd love to be able to get into some of the points. We may do longer than two hours. We'll see if um, I can just spend some time because there's some parts from Logic Ascents I'd love to get into. There's some other parts from uh, Foucault, uh, Deleuze's Foucault, that I think would be worth reading here too. So a lot of really great sort of references we can pull from. But with that, I will let all of you go. Thank you so much for joining us today. And as I always say, this is the highlight of my fucking week. Well, I have two highlights, Logic Ascents and this. It's highlight of my week. I adore it every week. And I thank you all very much for joining and uh, asking questions and bearing with me as we talk through it. Uh, I adore it and I love all of you. So thank you very much. And I uh, hope all of you are doing well. See you around. Thank you.